Hey, listeners, my name is Evan Feinberg, Executive Director of Stand Together Foundation and one of your hosts for the Stand Together podcast. Every time you hear my voice on the show, we'll either be talking about the history of the social sector or paradigms that are shifting within it. While I'd like to fancy myself an expert on the history of philanthropy, in reality, I'm really a good student at best. One who loves to opine on how where we've been continues to affect where we're going as a social sector. But fortunately, I'll be joined by a great friend, Becky Endicott, of the We Are For Good podcast, who is something much more akin to an expert on the subject. Together, we'll attempt to present you a 10,000-foot view of philanthropy, past and present, as we all look to a better future. This is A Brief History of Good, Part 1. Hi, Becky. Thanks so much for doing this show. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Evan, I'm so glad to be here. Everybody, so nice to meet you. I'm Becky Endicott. I'm one of the co-founders, and I'm the chief storyteller at We Are For Good. And I'm a lifelong nonprofit purist, spent 20 years in the sector fundraising, doing marketing. And yeah, now I'm with We Are For Good, and we're working to democratize and create a kindness community that's about upskilling the next generation of modern fundraisers and people who are wanting to do good. And it's just a delight to be here, and I love talking about history. So let's do it today. Well, the We Are For Good podcast is one of my very favorite podcasts. I've been on it many times myself, and I'm an avid listener of the podcast. Everyone needs to check it out. But for today, you just mentioned that you are the chief storyteller for the We Are For Good podcast. Let's start this episode, as I hope we'll start every one of these Brief History of Good episodes, by having you tell us a story, Becky. Okay, I'm going to take you back if everybody's buckled up and ready to roll. We're going back to 1794, and there's a gentleman that is walking near a bridge in Plymouth, Massachusetts. His name was Captain Churchill. And as he's sort of taking this leisurely stroll, this frantic child is running up to him, and he's telling him about this young boy who is underwater. And they're calling out for help, and people are running and trying to come to his aid, but it's high tide, and no one can get to him. And out of the blue, a man by the name of Dolphin Garler, he's an African-American man who works in a nearby store, comes flying through uh, the beach and into the surf because he noticed these few bubbles on the water's surface. He quickly dives in and he used what people call a prompt and spirited action to save this child. He was able to get to him and return him to his mother. And just the community watched all of this come down. It was such a harrowing experience. And so they kind of came together to recognize just this extraordinary act of bravery and altruism. And they were recounting this event to a statewide charity that promoted rescues from drowning. And because of this town's lobbying, because of the advocacy, because of the passion and what they were able to see on the front lines, the Humane Society of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts recognized Garler with a $10 award. This is 1794. This is the largest gift that this organization had given this year in appreciation for his incredible service. And I think it's just one of the most aspirational examples of how philanthropy and the history of philanthropy has been innate within our DNA for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. Wow, Becky. First of all, you're an awesome storyteller. I cannot wait to do this entire podcast series with you and just hear you telling the stories of the history of philanthropy. 
Becky, I've got a story for you about early American history that I think is is worth uh, telling. It's the story of a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville. Did you ever read him in uh, in history class? Oh my gosh. I, not only do I know him, I am a huge fan of his vision and his moxie back in the day in the early 1800s. Keep going. You know, for many years, I, I read Democracy in America and learned a lot from it. But I, th- I think the, the context that he wrote these essays is pretty helpful. So Tocqueville's in, in France in the early 1800s, and everyone's sort of watching from afar as this fledgling country across the ocean is beginning to gain all kinds of steam. So there's all kinds of dynamism. They start building canals and building new products and new approaches. They had sort of the early version of the assembly line up in Massachusetts. And so everyone in Europe is like, what is going on over there in America? And Tocqueville wants to know what is different, unique, what's working over across the ocean. So Tocqueville, he then travels to America under the promise that he can tell people what's going on. First, he says he's going to come study the American penal system, our criminal justice system. He never really had any intention. That was how he got bankrolled. So Tocqueville gets over to America with the promise of then instead explaining what's going on in America that's making it so interesting and so dynamic. And his only framework is that it must be really well laid out plans coming from the capital of our country because that's all he knew in Europe. So he goes to Washington, D.C. and finds out that it's a swamp and that nothing's really happening. In fact, nobody was <laughs> even really there. So he's like, ah, it's not it's not coming from, from Washington, D.C. And then he says, okay, well, I'll go to the state capitals. And he begins to explore whether they've got better leaders there. And it turns out that sort of very similar, part-time legislators, no one's really doing anything there. But then he begins to explore in communities and he finds what's so amazing about America. And it's just ordinary people always and everywhere solving problems together. And he says, when the Americans see a problem of any kind, they seek each other out. And when they find each other, they unite. And when they unite, they become a power that speaks and to which one listens. And the whole time you were telling the story of Dolphin Garler, that's the story I was thinking about. It was in 1790s, and now we're talking in the 1830s. Tocqueville is seeing this. He's like, my goodness. That's what's so amazing about America is that people are seeking each other out to solve problems together. And it's important in his context, and I'd love to hear you unpack this a little bit, Becky, too. Tocqueville was seen in Europe where you had powerful aristocrats in charge, right? Um, right. Lords, and they were used to the feudal system. And, you know, throughout European history, there were always the powerful people that took care of other people. But in America, you didn't have those same structures. You didn't have some people that made all the decisions for others. And so instead, the American people were constantly coming together. He saw them as weak individuals, then coming together to be strong. And their strength was actually the strength of America. And to me, that's the story you were telling about Dolphin Garler. And to me, it's just the incredible uniqueness that is American philanthropy and the way that we have put this signature on the way that we show up to help humanity. And I think, you know, de Tocqueville was so ahead of his time and his ways that he could come in and just sit back and observe 
these connection points. I mean, and I, I, th- I think about him, he used to call these associations, you know, that's, that's what he observed was these associations where people come together and they, they see problems and then they leverage what they have, what they know, their community, their networks, their skills, they share what works together and it helps to elevate the democracy. It helps to elevate economy. It helps to grow grow and make communities more threaded together. And he thought that this was going to be the thing that absolutely was going to break, to your point, the feudal system. And we're seeing, you know, the fall of, you know, all these aristocracies. And I think, you know, something that he said that has always just really stayed with me is no country in the history of the world has so creatively and effectively combined philanthropy and government service in a way that people can give freely of their own pockets, you know, and government will tax us less. And just as a matter of public policy, you know, we're rewarded for taking a personal role in the advancement of society. And he saw this as this is the way that civil societies are created. And when you pull together in one direction and you share what you know and you help your neighbor, this is how incredibly transformational democracies are born and how thriving communities are built. And I feel like we are seeing that in the modern era right now, even from a digital sense. So Becky, I appreciate so much that you've already flowed it through to today, but you're now a few hundred years ahead. I want to go ahead and go back a few hundred years though, because right, you mentioned the tax status of giving to nonprofits and whatnot, all that's going to come much, much, much later, right? So I want to get at what Tocqueville was really seeing, though, because he, interestingly, starts talking about the associations that you're describing. He's talking about the problems that Americans are seeking each other out to solve. And he makes a point that it's, it's problems of all different kinds. He calls them commercial and social, so he starts with the commercial ones. He said they start, they're starting markets and they're finding new ways to distribute goods and trade with one another. And on the social side, so they, they, they started to build schools and churches and prisons and, you know, the equivalent of barn raising in a community to solve specific problems. And to him, these are, these are just two different kinds of problems. But it's interesting because in America, we talk a lot about for-profit organizations and, and the, the mutual benefit of individuals that create goods and services, that create value for others, and we celebrate business in this regard. But we often don't talk about social problem solving the way Tocqueville did as a form of a sort of social economy, if you will. But I find it pretty interesting that Tocqueville refers them as two different things, but basically talks about them the same. I don't know if that resonates with you. I think one of the things that that stays with me about de Tocqueville is one of his grounding principles and observations was that the solutions exist and lie in the community. And so if you can empower those on the front lines, you know, through people who are creating these orphanages or, you know, soup kitchens or whatever we're seeing all the way back, you know, to even the Sung Dynasty, you know, if we can empower those on the front lines and listen and have this partnership, then really our potential is limitless. One of my favorite authors, he passed away in 2009. His name was Dick Cornell. Dick Cornell wrote a book about the voluntary sector in America, and he picks up on Tocqueville's line of thinking here, and it's deeply influenced my own on this. 
And he doesn't call it the social sector um, the way that Tocqueville did. He calls it the independent sector. And he's trying to explain what is this sector that we're talking about. Because it's pretty easy to understand the government sector where people act based on the rules that are in place, right? If I don't pay my taxes, then the government will garnish my wages and throw me in jail. So I pay my taxes. And on top of the government sector, there's sort of the business sector where people understand the incentives there pretty well. I make goods and services. I sell those to somebody else. It benefits them. They reward me with the mutual benefit of payment and I profit and everybody's happy. And so you've got the profit motive in some way, shape or form driving all of the voluntary exchange among individuals in the business sector. But Cornell, drawing on Tocqueville, talks about how the social sector works. And he describes it as being driven by the service motive, that each of us wants to be the type of person that creates value for other people. And this is what Tocqueville was observing. We want to serve others. And in doing so, that that makes us pursue our happiness more effectively as we serve one another. And this explains so much of human activity, why I'm husband to my wife, uh, why I parent my kids, why I'm a good friend to others, why I act respectfully in, in, in interpersonal situations. It's because we want to be a certain type of person to others, and we get value out of being that type of person. And that service is one of those, the top things we can do to fulfill that, the motivations that we have as human beings. And so he actually talks about the independent sector, the social sector, being a social economy that leverages our desire to serve one another in ways that creates value for other people. And I think that's what Tocqueville saw. He saw Americans benefiting from coming together in common cause to solve both mutual problems and problems for others. It goes back to the heart of the word, philanthropy. I mean, it's the love of mankind. And I think each of us has had a moment in our life where philanthropy, humanity, giving, generosity is has moved us and stayed with us. And I, I'm so glad we're exploring the history of this, Evan, because I think so many people who work in this sector have no idea the roots that have been laid at, the, at, the, at our feet to lead us into this day. And it goes back to exactly what de Tocqueville did observe. And he talks about, you know, the only way that opinions and ideas can be renewed hearts enlarged and human minds developed is through this reciprocal influence that we can have on each other. And so we're seeing this expressly played out all the time right now in a modern era, but to know that it has been grounded in our legacy for hundreds of years, is just positively fascinating. Yeah. I love how you put that, Becky. And I'll, I'll wrap us up on Tocqueville here. I, we're going to come back to him a lot, but I've got one last quote that I just have to read that I think is such a good, good Tocqueville quote. He says, Among democratic nations, all citizens are independent and weak. They can achieve almost nothing by themselves, and none of them could force his fellows to help him. Therefore, they sink into a state of impotence if they do not learn to help each other voluntarily. And and here's why I love that quote, right? The suggestion in that quote is, is is that we are independent and weak, and that's a good thing, right? Each of us on our own can't really accomplish that much. And that's a wonderful thing because it means we need each other. And if we, if we don't recognize our need for one another and, our, and the opportunity to serve one another, then we will continue to be weak and impotent on our own. But instead, this is where that quote that I shared from before, 
But if we seek each other out and solve problems together, if we serve one another, then we become a power that one sees from afar, a power that speaks and to which one listens. And that is what America was when Tocqueville came, and I believe still is in so many ways. But now, let's talk about the history since then and where, where we've made progress and where perhaps we've got opportunities to, to move toward that Tocquevillean vision. So let's let's talk about what happened next. After Tocqueville, we sort of get the steady march, perhaps, Becky, of nationalizing community. I stole that phrase from Dick Cornell, who I mentioned earlier. Dick Cornell talks about this next era in, in American history, in the history of philanthropy, as nationalizing community. And he's particularly pointing toward the growth of government. Talk to me about that phrase, nationalizing community. What, what, what do you hear when you hear that? And what do you see happening at this point? Well, I think philanthropy is starting to grow up a little bit. It's starting to get a little bit more sophisticated. And so what we're seeing right now is just this evolution into the nonprofit industry compared to what de Tocqueville would have described as associational life. And so you're starting to see structures arise. You're starting to see kind of a top-down, you know, a heavier and a formalized approach to addressing systemic issues. And the beauty of philanthropy during this time is while government is leading the charge on many of those social issues, you know, within community, there are still holes and there's still gaps. And the average man and woman can still rise up within their own community, within their own spheres and networks to help fill in the gap. And that is the beauty, I think, of the democratic process. And it also gives the average man or woman the ability to say, hey, I don't think these government programs are exactly aligning with the things that I think are most important. So I'm going to put my time and money over here. And so I think this is just the beginning of where we're starting to see philanthropy get a little more sophisticated, get a little bit more structured. Yeah. So, you know, in my opinion, I think the the industry really began to get more formalized, yes, when those top-down structures, both government and philanthropy, got involved. And there's some really troubling things that began to occur as the actors were sort of uh, big and powerful actors, the sort of the perhaps the aristocrats that Tocqueville was worried about wielding influence in Europe. And in America, that was sort of a feature of the system, that there were no big, strong 10,000-pound uh, gorillas in the room, that it was weak people coming together to solve problems. But the next age of philanthropy and social sector work in America seems to be really driven by powerful actors, both government and philanthropists. So let's, let's actually take philanthropists first. Tell us more about what happens next. What are some of the next big trends in American philanthropy that you see? Well, I'm thinking about kind of the rise of the industrial capitalist who would make these really incredible fortunes, very large fortunes. You're thinking of your Carnegie's and your Rockefeller's, and then they would give it away. And so people are watching the rise of this great philanthropist, and all of a sudden the term philanthropy is getting a little murky because it's not necessarily all about altruism. We're associating philanthropy with wealth. And that inherently is a little bit of a disconnect 
disconnect for me, um, and I think for anyone who's a purist in the sense, but we're seeing that the influence that these philanthropists can give, not only over these social causes, but over government, over community, over business, is sort of a new phenomenon. And I would love for your thoughts on that, too. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're you're definitely right to say it's hard to talk about modern philanthropy without going back to this industrial capitalist age, the early 20th century in particular. But you, you really have to, you do have to go back to Andrew Carnegie and I think in particular uh, John Rockefeller as really driving both then and frankly, even still to this day, a lot of the the sort of mental models and thought leadership that underlie philanthropy and it's not that I'm uncomfortable that individuals of wealth and means are exercising their service motive to do wonderful and great work in this world. And I think those individuals have been, and those families and their legacies have been some of the most exciting and impressive and generous philanthropic sources in American history and deserve a lot of credit for all the good that they've done. But I think it's really hard to tell the story of modern philanthropy without thinking about their their initial approach. First, you know, Andrew Carnegie really saw it as a as sort of a sacred honor. He, in 1889, he, he published an essay on wealth. And he says, well, a philanthropist should, quote, consider all surplus revenues which come to him simply as trust funds, which he is called upon to administer and strictly bound as a matter of duty to administer in the manner which, in his judgment, is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community. And I think this is a beautiful exposition of the service motive that uh, we talked about earlier and, and important that those that have the philanthropic means would see this sort of sacred honor to invest well in the community. And then I'll add to this sort of brief history, John Rockefeller. At this point, he's the richest person uh, in the in the world at the turn of the 20th century. And along with his son, John Rockefeller Jr., he was really a, a, a key and important catalyst in what we know as modern philanthropy. And, and so he he was trying to recast charitable organizations in the image of corporate enterprise, right? Saying, hey, we're, we're, we're really driving progress in business and thinking more efficiently and effectively. How can we take that mindset uh, to philanthropy? And the big thing about Rockefeller's philanthropy is that his model began sort of moving us away from tackling discrete, immediate problems and instead starting to focus on, on root causes, as he would put it, that are underlying some of the problems. It's a common uh, evolution in the sector. It was away from the sort of specifically finding and solving problems and toward trying to, to get at the root of the problem here as well. So, yeah, I think, I think these guys are pretty important. It's hard, to, it's hard to study philanthropy in American history without thinking about the very first major philanthropists. This time in history is so fascinating to me. I mean, these are men who were clearly ahead of their time, just, you know, like to Tocqueville. And, and I think about, you know, even Andrew Carnegie, who's, who was one of these individuals that says, you know, successful businessmen 
know best how to use wealth to benefit society. And to me, that we're living in a time, I keep going back to the modern day, you know, corporate social responsibility is such a booming business right now, corporate social impact. And these giants and titans of business were the ones saying, hey, if you can actually tether these two together, not only is it good for business, but it's good for the heart, it's good for humanity as well. And I just think there are a lot of lessons to be learned here. And you can look at the expanse of uh, the Carnegie and the Rockefeller, you know, dynasties and what they've done for philanthropy and the way that they've accelerated, again, that professionalization and that really structured way that we engage with community. It's just really fascinating. I love this. All right. Well, now it's my turn, though, to jump forward a couple hundred years because, you know, corporate social responsibility today is a little pet peeve of mine that, you know, almost all corporate social responsibility right now is sort of just public relations by another name and companies trying to look good. But for Andrew Carnegie, he talked about the sort of sacred honor to, to figure out what creates the most value for people in the communities that we're in. And now you fast forward and businesses that are engaging in philanthropic work today almost always are giving to that which provides the best public relations rather than what creates the most value for people and communities. I love that you went here and I am so going to go here with you as well because I agree with you. Corporate social responsibility has been baked in to be this sort of check the box way that we incorporate good into the way that we do business. And to me, that is one of the saddest, most false notions that we can give to our communities because organizations and corporations that bake philanthropy into the DNA. Again, not just the icing on the cake, but this is a part of who we are. They're living their values. They're empowering employees. They're showing up generously with their customers, not just their stakeholders, but the people who are on the front lines. And so I think you're pulling up something that we're starting to see early in the 19th century, which is this rise of the tethering between philanthropy and power. And what that happens when those two are pulled together we can see it happen in very good ways, but we can see it happen in very negative ways. The way that it plays out in racism and misogyny and bigotry. And I just think the imbalance of all of that is really starting to rise in this section. But again, I think that the fairy tale part of the story is that where power starts to rise and things become imbalanced, the people in this democratic nation start to fill in the gaps of where that power is not hitting. They're filling in the gaps with their own skills, their own donations, their own network, whatever they can bring to bear. So I want to keep moving us along in American history. So so we're sort of talking about these early philanthropists, but I think a really important thing that's happening right around the same time is that these individuals that have made considerable uh, resources at the end of the 19th century and then into the early 20th century began to build sort of what we now know as the modern private foundation. And so what typifies this era is that you have both the associational life that is always and everywhere what the social sector is, the relationships we have in our community, helping a friend move and and showing up with your church. And these are sort of all associational life. And, and we still have so much of that beautiful sort of informal sector that's out there of, of people helping people, neighbors helping neighbors. But you start to get this much more formal philanthropic sector of those that are giving 
toward nonprofits or toward causes that they believe will create this value in communities. There are some of the big names we still see today, right? The Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation. Many of these are still some of the most prominent today and continue to, to have a sort of a, a legacy of this professionalized philanthropy. So I guess the question then is, is what does this mean for both the social sector work and that beautiful sort of associational life that we said, what does it mean to have it more professionalized? What are the, what are the consequences of that? I think that that's worth us discussing for a bit. I mean, I would love to share a story about how this played out like in the early 1900s, if I can create some space, because I think it's a great answer to your question. And for anyone that knows the story of sort of the first organized fundraising efforts, it started with the YMCA. And they, the short story is that there was a man named Frank Pierce, who was tasked with raising this money to build this YMCA in your backyard, Evan, in Washington, D.C. And after two years of campaigning, he raised about $270,000. He had about 80000 left to raise, and the donations had stopped coming in, which as a recovering major gift officer, I feel him so intensely in that moment, because we all know what that feels like when we've worked in nonprofit shops. But Mr. Pierce was pretty darn smart, and he employed the help of a man named Charles Sumner Ward, and they created what is probably one of the first formalized philanthropic fundraising efforts to raise the rest of the money, and they did three really innovative things. One, they engaged a publicist for their campaign, and they used corporate donations to pay for advertising. Totally groundbreaking at this time in history. Number two, they purposely kept the campaign short. They like gave themselves less than 30 days to so they created some urgency. And then they created a campaign clock to ensure that time was passing and that people felt the need to rise up. And I mean, the the, the end of the story is by 1913, not only did they did they pass that and that marker and successfully raised all that money, they were starting to run internationally multi-million dollar campaign using these techniques. And all of a sudden, people are starting to see that philanthropy, when formalized, when paired with business, when paired with community, can really have a very large effect. And that was happening at the early, early onset of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, professionalizing these services and making them more sophisticated does create a lot of value, right? Bringing modern techniques about marketing, getting the word out there about efforts that people might get excited about and rallying support through fundraising. These are positive things that, that enable us to unlock a bunch more resources. We, we, of course, celebrate in financial markets. As things get more sophisticated, it allows investment to flow toward things that will create more value for, for other people. And so we get excited when when we get economic development and more sophisticated investment structures and whatnot, because it unlocks more opportunity for more people. And seeing the social sector professionalize is not a, you know, I think some people might look at it and be like, oh, I wish I could go back to Tocqueville and everything was so much simpler and everyone just sought each other out and they were uniting and solving problems. And yes, in many ways, I would love to continue that ethos and hold on to that ethos. But professionalizing the sector has all kinds of benefits, right? I mean, enables so many more people to get involved in so many new ways. And this is what your podcast is, is talking to literally tens of thousands of people who dedicate their lives to finding new and better ways to create good in the world. I mean, this is a positive, right? 
This is absolutely a positive, and it and it underscores to me what I think is the most profound gift that philanthropy gives us, which is everybody can be a philanthropist. Everybody has something to give. Everybody can rise with what they have, and if you don't have two nickels to rub together, it's okay, because we still need your hands. You know, we need your ears. We need your network. Okay, so we've talked about the positives, and we're we're both super excited about bringing more people in, more resources in, more creativity in, more sophistication. We're all really excited about that. But, and this is a not just a small but, Becky, this is like a major, major but. I'm ready for it. Is that our sector has actually not delivered phenomenal results. So if you think about the major problems, those social ills that Rockefeller cared about, if we go back to Andrew Carnegie and, and really trying to this sort of sacred, the sacred privilege and, and sacred um, responsibility of using resources to create the most value for people. If you were to look at America today, you'd say, well, we sort of are unmoored from accomplishing that goal. You know, social mobility on America is is beginning to go on the decline, which is inconsistent with sort of the, the, the idea of America. Our poverty rates haven't budged in nearly six decades. Importantly, deaths of despair, even well before the pandemic, began to go on the rise. Social anxiety, social isolation, every major indicator of sort of social well-being tends to be going the wrong direction in the areas that philanthropy seeks to address. And I'd like to posit that the problem is the topic that we were talking about around nationalizing community, that while we were getting all this sophistication, somehow sophistication also meant centralization and top-down control. And so the government's involvement and becoming now today much larger in than formal philanthropy. Today, the government spends a little over a trillion dollars per year on poverty programs and social programs. Philanthropy, depending on how you measure it, is somewhere between 200 and 400 billion today. One way to say this is we have a bunch of associations, like Tocqueville mentioned, but associations without members. And so I, th- I think there's some, there's some drawbacks to this. It's something that we have to address because for philanthropy to work for, you know, these ideations that Tocqueville had, it had to be democratic in nature. And the fact that we are starting to see a top-down effect already says it's not going to be democratic because there's an imbalance of power. And I think the power dynamics are so interesting the way that they have morphed in philanthropy because you talk about economics. I mean, philanthropy has been like 4% of GDP for forever, for a very long time. We haven't moved the needle on that. And that is, to me, is very systemic of the way that the sector has been set up. I really think that these networks of organizations like in law, civil rights, feminism, they were not accountable to member constituencies, but they were professionally staffed. They were more focused on a national level of advocacy as opposed to these localized person-to-person change. And I think 
to Tocqueville saw this a little bit. And because we have so many different associations that have cropped up, partnership has waned, I think, and, and knowledge sharing has waned and lifting the voice of the person affected in the community has waned. And these are the things that I think we need to get back to as a sector that are already rooted in our history. We've just forgotten about them. We left off a pretty major historical development about the growth of government here. And it's sort of in the FDR New Deal era that this really takes hold. This, I think, very well-intentioned idea that we essentially had too many Americans at this point in our history in a wealthy country and then certainly once the Great Depression hit. This idea that we had too many resources to let folks starve on the streets, live without a roof over their head, and so on and so forth. And I certainly understand this impulse. And so the federal government then began to step in, certainly state governments as well, but the federal government began to step in and want to help to offer a a new deal. And this flowed through to the great society in America as well, this, uh, this declared war on poverty, this idea that we can solve the problems of our social barriers through government plans and programs. And... You know, I have my opinions about those those government policies. Me too. I know that'll shock you. <laughs> but I think what's inescapable about that is that it turned the eyes of everyone involved in this work and ordinary Americans toward the advocacy that you mentioned. That when if you were trying to really support a certain constituency, the homeless, the those that were experiencing poverty or those that were marginalized in some way, that then your advocacy turned toward convincing the people who controlled those big top-down programs rather than doing the work in communities. Today, as a result of, I believe, this New Deal growth and then the Great Society growth in in centralization and top-down control, the prevailing nonprofit dollars are no longer to organizations doing work to help people live better lives. The prevailing resources go toward either government contracts to do the work or advocacy toward government to become that which the government provides contracts toward. So you essentially move away from individuals, and there's still plenty of it, but you're moving generally away from individuals giving to those things which they believe will create the most value toward government contracts and advocacy for government contracts. And I I think this is troubling. This is troubling for the future of our sector. It is so troubling. And I was today years old when I learned that stat. I mean, that is a very troubling stat. And I'll juxtapose it with something we're seeing today in the modern giving era, which is this erosion of the base of support from average individuals. And the belief that people are sharing is that they don't believe that their small gift can make a difference when actually it was the collective that was that built the bedrock of this incredible country and this world that we live in solving these very large societal issues. And so it is deeply concerning because there are many in the sector today who are trying to reverse that trend. And so that's really the aspirational goal that I have that I would like to move toward in a modern society. Absolutely. And I think as we think about the state that we're in today, 
And I think this will be a good preview of what I hope to discuss with you on our next episode together, Becky. I'm rubbing my hands together. Let's do it. I want to explore a really important question about why our industry is characterized by what it's not. We talk about nonprofits, right? I run a nonprofit called Stand Together Foundation. Why are we characterized by what we're not? But sort of what I want to get at is what's broken about our modern social economy? And here's a little teaser for that next episode. I hope you like this one as a, as a, as a thought-provoking thing. Why do we call nonprofits in America not in profits or not-for-profits? But similar organizations in Europe are called NGOs or non-governmental organizations or non-government organizations. It's, it's a funny thing that organizations that look similar are called two different things. Do you think that would be a topic worth exploring on our next episode, Becky? It is literally in the book that I have yet to write. Like, why are we called the thing that we are not? And I cannot wait to dive into this. You are poking the bear with these little teasers that you're giving. And I'm telling you, I'm putting my boxing gloves on and I am ready to spar and talk about this. Fantastic. Well, I think that if we could explore that alongside sort of the formalization, you started getting at it earlier in this episode, that today you can give money to one of these nonprofits and deduct some money from your taxes, how that came to be, how we got sort of modern 501c3 organizations, and essentially what what you and I view as problems in today's social economy that could be improved as we understand this history, I think will make for a pretty exciting episode next week. So thank you, Becky, for joining me on this Brief History of Good podcast. Thank you for, uh, for helping taking us down this history lesson and, uh, and beginning to focus us on what we are for as we talk about it. Oh, I've loved every minute. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. The Stand Together podcast is a product of the Stand Together Foundation. It's produced by our awesome partners at Bittersweet Creative with executive producers Obiekwe Okolo and Robert Winship and editing, engineering, and sound design by Robert Winship. And as always, an extra special thanks to producer Molly Ringel and to Elgin Cato for herding cats and filling in the gaps that made this all possible. I'm Evan Feinberg, and from all of us here, we'll see you next week. And I, I did text a, a Pittsburgh friend here in, in between. It is Carnegie that Pittsburghers get this right uh, okay, I am changing that in my brain for the rest of my life. Thank you. It's not just you. I mean, um, I, I know this for a fact every, that when you go to New York, you go to Carnegie Hall. You don't go to, but it's it is Carnegie. That is how Andrew Carnegie would have pronounced his name, and so I feel I feel good about my pronunciation.